Blog Talk Radio. It's been a long road getting from there to here. It's been a long time, but my time is finally here. I can feel the change in the way right now. Nothing's in my way. This is Dr. Jess Armayan coming to you from the Center for Bioindividualized Medicine here in southeastern Pennsylvania. And tonight we have a really great show. Um, for those of you who remember, um, a really great show, a really great show, a really great show for you tonight. And uh, I can tell by the amount of people signing in at the moment, we're going to be talking about Lyme disease and going to give you the 411, the actual truth as, as we see it, of course. Okay, so the agenda tonight is uh, we're going to have uh, our own Megan, uh, our own Meg Hurley, uh, give us her uh, herbal advice for the week, and then we're going to jump into the history of Lyme and how the different testing works. Because I'm a great believer that everybody should have a uh, idea of how the basics work. And then I'll be introducing and interviewing Sean Bean, who is a true expert in this area. He works with a lot of Lyme literate doctors, and he is very well versed in uh, the the treatment of Lyme. And if anybody hasn't uh, gotten the PDF for this show tonight, um, <clears throat> Megan, where can they go to get it? Uh, they go up to the drjessarmine.com and if they click on the link at the left that says our radio show it will be at the top page at the top of the page there okay uh, so obviously we're getting a little bit of feedback there okay but if you go to uh, bioindividualmed.com or DrJessOnline.com is the same area, and click our radio show, and you'll see it right there. That's where the PDF is, and you can also watch the show from there. Um, wonder who was giving us the feedback. I'm going to cut off one. See who's doing that, and that was Sean giving us the feedback. Okay, Meg, you you're yeah. on. Give us Hi. your give us your advice for the week. Okay, so. Well, it's, it's not so much advice, but it's something that um, that I've put up on the website for people um, in herbal. And what it is is this California poppy tincture. The use of this, um, believe it or not, 
more and more holistic-minded doctors are using it in place of benzos for people because it's such an anxiety reducer, helps with GABA, cortisol, things like that, helps with um, anxiety, sleeplessness, um, and so, and it's non-addictive. So we've been using the um, parts like um, everything from the above the ground to the roots, they use that for insomnia, okay, and it does not have any dependency risks. So I really, really like it for people that are having a lot of anxiety from stress or from healing. Um, so you can use about drops a day, you know, at a time. In and it's just a wonderful sleep aid and helps with anxiety, anxiousness, and balance some of those chemicals that you're dealing with when you're dealing with a lot of stress and, or your body's under a lot of stress. So we have that on the website and I just think it's a, a really underrated herbal remedy for things versus some of the over-the-counter treatments that cause issues, you know, whether it's being lethargic in the morning or kind of a dull headache or just feeling like you can't wake up and get going doesn't do any of that, so it's really, really interesting to me, so I thought we'd add it to the site. And repeat, every time I, I think of poppy, I think of <clears throat> illegal stuff. <laughs> oh, no, no, it's, so this is not an opiate, this is not an opiate, this is California poppy, and there are different classes of poppies out there, so this is more of a... Um, it is a pain reliever, but more like an analgesic. You know, it's it's not it's not an opiate. It's not an opium form of poppy. That is a completely different family of poppy than California poppy, which you know nobody knew that for a long time, right? So it's it's really safe. It is, um, and it's perfectly legal everywhere in the United States, Canada, and Europe to use. Very good. Very, very good. Well, it's going to be on our website, so um, <clears throat> I know I'll try it as soon as it gets here, and uh, we're going to be writing about it on the blogs, as well as all the other uh, things, uh, tinctures you've made up, and I'm looking oh, forward you. to it. So thanks uh-huh. a lot, and we will catch up with you next week then. Okay. Okay. Take care, Max. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, everybody, let's get into the meat of today. Sean, are you on? I'm here, Josh. Okay, great. All the, all the feedback went away. Great. <clears throat> okay, everybody. Uh, like I said, I'm going to start by looking at some of the history of Lyme disease. And if you'll follow along in your PDF file, okay, this is a really, really, really big subject. And I didn't realize that um, how big it was until I started writing this PowerPoint up over the weekend, and it took me two days to do it. And I could have written another two or three hundred uh, slides, but <clears throat> so today we're going to be covering Lyme, not the co-infections. Okay, we're going to probably do a show next week that's going to include everything we didn't include this week. So hang in there and be a little patient with us. <clears throat> Lyme uh, started become started getting on the radar in 1975-1976 in Connecticut 
where they noticed that uh, 39 children and 12 adults in Old Lyme, Connecticut, uh, had a kind of arthritis that was characterized by a short and mild but often recurrent attacks of pain, <clears throat> swelling, and a few large joints, especially the knees, knees with longer intervening, intervening periods of no symptoms at all. Uh, none of them had permanent injuries to the joints. Uh, there were people with fevers and headaches, and the um, State of Connecticut uh, Department of Health is saying, gee, we better start looking at this because it sounds like there may a biting insect may be involved, and little did they know what lay down the road. Lyme disease, and again, I'm starting at the very basics, okay, is a bacterial infection that is spread through the body, uh, spread through the bite of one of several types of ticks. Lyme disease or Lyme borreliosis is an infectious disease caused by at least three species of bacteria belonging to the genus Borrelia, like Borrelia bugdorferi. Borrelia is the main cause of Lyme in North America, and Borrelia, as I think I can say, and Borrelia garni cause most of the European cases. But Texas, being Texas, had to have its own strain, hence we had Borrelia Lone Starry, and that was from the Lone Star Tick, which you see a picture of right there. Ticks that cause or carry Lyme are quite small. Okay, it's something that you have to realize. You need to look. It's not those big kind of dog ticks, you know, kind of ones that are like two inches long. Okay, these guys are really small. They look like little spots. Uh, you can barely see them. Okay, and I put some pictures up showing you how little they can be. And there's a picture of the Lone Star tick, a wood tick, and a deer tick. And, of course, here in the, in the Pennsylvania area, deer tick is um, the thing that we usually see. The risk areas on page 6 are colored in uh, areas where Lyme is... Um, at the highest risk, but don't be fooled by this, people, okay, where you may see Long Island over there and Lyme and parts of Pennsylvania and New Jersey being really, really high. Okay, Lyme is everywhere, okay? We have a global economy. People just don't hang out, okay? They go from place to place, and their ticks go with them, okay? So um, where these are the reported cases, remember, these are the reported cases according to the CDC criteria, and as we'll find out in a little while, the CDC criteria <clears throat> ain't necessarily the only criteria where Lyme is diagnosed. So, frankly, when in doubt, check it out. If you find an embedded tick, you see this one is an engorged um, embedded tick, pull it out, okay, and I'll show you in the next slide how to do that, and take the tick to the lab, okay, take it to the doctor because the tick itself can be examined for Lyme. And not only can you be examined for Lyme, but the tick itself can be examined for Lyme. How to remove a tick. Okay, I know this is like ultra simplistic. Okay, but some people may not know how to remove a tick. And frankly, okay, you don't use flat or dull tip tweezers. You get, um, you make sure that they are like a needle nose type um, tweezer and you want to sterilize it. You want to grab the tick by the head and slowly kind of rock it back and forth, and it'll come out, okay? Don't squeeze it. Don't pull it out. Don't leave the head in there. Okay, don't twist it. Just kind of slowly and carefully pull it back and forth. Okay, the general wisdom 
<clears throat> as long as your ticks are removed within 24 hours, pathogens will really will not be transmitted. Okay, but honestly, I've read some studies where as little as 30 minutes. And some of the tick-borne diseases in the United States include tularemia, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, Lyme disease, southern tick associate, rash illness, erythritis, which I could never pronounce, anaplasma, babiosis, rickettsia, porcaria, rickettsiosis, all kinds of rickettsia, and tick-borne relapsing fever. Okay, everybody wants to know about the bullseye rash. Got a couple of pictures of what a bullseye rash looks like. But remember, the rash doesn't always happen. Okay, you may not remember it. It may be very mild. Okay, the typical bullseye rash that you're looking at, uh, it doesn't always doesn't always occur. But should you see it, okay, its its um, appearance is quite distinctive, and uh, you should always suspect uh, Lyme disease. Okay, although sometimes a ringworm will look just like this also. Roots of infection. <clears throat> tick bites. Well, we already talked about that. And like I said, the common wisdom is that the tick has to be attached for 36 to 48 hours before it can transmit the microorganisms. And uh, again, I've read some studies as I was doing research for this that as little as 30 minutes, um, but who knows if those people were bit before. <clears throat> so again, when in doubt, check it out. Okay, you got the tick? Okay. Put it in something that so it can crawl out and bring it to the lab or the doctor so it can be examined, okay? Believe it or not, there's literature out now that says you can get Lyme from infected parents, breastfeeding from infected parents. Uh, you can get Lyme in utero, okay? This is a hotly debated subject, but there's more and more evidence coming along the pike that um, infected parents can transmit their um, Lyme disease to unborn children. <clears throat> of course, organ transplants, okay, blood transfusions, or receiving blood from another parasitic insect. Okay, so, uh, a insect bites one person, or what, and has um, that has it's taking a blood meal from one person that has um, Lyme and could inject it into somebody else. And believe it or not, there is new evidence that there can be actually sexual transmission. They're finding the uh, Borrelia bugdorferi and vaginal secretions in semen. So I swear this organism is amazing on where it can go in the body. Lyme disease symptoms. Well, I'm sure that as I'm sure out there there are going to be a ton of people with various and sundry symptoms, okay? <clears throat> because this bacteria spreads so well through the blood to tissue, joints, bone marrow, organs, and the brain, the symptoms are both numerous and varied, and they can include flu-like symptoms, headache, fatigue, fever, chills, sore muscles, hearing loss, paralysis, heart complications, fainting, palpitations, shortness of breath, insomnia, hot, swollen, and painful joints, rash at the, at the uh, site of the uh, tick bite, and psychological complications. There's studies being done or have been done in uh, Manhattan. I think Dr. Brian Fallon, who is a psychiatrist, uh, was treating uh, recalcitrant schizophrenia. Uh, some uh, people with schizophrenia who were recalcitrant to all the medicines, every single one of them, he would test them for Lyme, treat them for Lyme, and they would get better. 
there are other uh, studies showing that the use of minocycline in, um, in psychosis has been reversing the psychosis, and the thought is that it either is anti-inflammatory, which I don't think so, uh, or what I think is that it's killing off a chronic infection that is causing uh, upregulation of the immune system and is resulting in a schizophrenia. Okay, uh, slide 12, Lyme disease adult symptoms. Again, uh, Lyme is the fastest growing vector-borne disease around. Okay, most people don't recall the tick bite. Less than 70% of the people develop a rash. Treatment should begin without testing if, rash is, if the rash is present. Okay, and lab tests may be negative in the first four to six weeks. The early symptoms of the flu-like symptoms and rash sometimes bell palsy. Sometimes later symptoms will be like headache, stiff neck, lighter sound sensitivity, cognitive impairments, sleep disturbances, depression, anxiety, mood swings, arthritis, fatigue, abnormal abdominal pain, nausea, diarrhea, chest pain, palpitation, shortness of breath, tingling, burning, or shooting pains. Okay, this is from, as we've been talking about, chronic inflammation. I, I started dipping into what the children's symptoms might be because there's a lot of parents out there. And I, I, found a, um, I found a nice source from this Dr. Charles Ray Jones. And uh, he compiled it. He's a pediatric um, Lyme specialist. And um, he compiled a list of um, symptoms that he sees in his young patients, and the list is there, but very quickly, severe fatigue unrelieved by rest, insomnia, headaches, nausea, impaired concentration, poor short-term memory, inability to sustain attention. Gee, hmm, sounds like ADD, doesn't it? Sounds like ADD, but what's ADD? We've been talking about it's a set of symptoms, ain't it? Okay, maybe this is the reason. Something to be thinking about. <clears throat> Being overwhelmed by schoolwork. Well, that was me normally. Uh, difficulty making decisions, confusion, uncharacteristic behavior, outbursts and mood swings, fever, chills, joint page, pain, dizziness, noise and light sensitivity. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. <clears throat> Dr. Jones also documented congenital or dis gestational symptoms in some children who were infected in utero by, or by breastfeeding. His index of suspicion was raised if the child had frequent fevers, increased incidence of ear and throat infections, increased incidence of pneumonia, irritability, joint pain, poor muscle tone, gastroesophageal reflux. Gastroesophageal reflux. You know how many kids are being um, treated for acid reflux? A small windpipe, cataracts, developmental delay, learning disabilities, and psychiatric problems. The reason I'm bringing all of this stuff out and reading it over and over and over and over again is I want to point out to everyone who's listening and has uh, been kind enough to give us their time uh, is that, you know, look at these symptoms. Uh, how many other diagnoses or alleged diagnoses can you pin here? Okay, I can see ADD, I can see ADHD, I can see schizophrenia, I can see um, uh, gastroesophageal, you know, uh, acid reflux, I can see autism, I can see all kinds of stuff going on here that may be from Lyme. So if a good workup for Lyme has not been done, especially since Lyme is kind of in 80 countries and it's endemic in the area, a proper workup, people, has not been done. 
okay, and I don't care what your doctors say, insist on it. Threaten them with bodily violence if you have to. Okay, make sure your children, if they have these symptoms, okay, and they can have them from birth even, okay, at least you've ruled it out. <clears throat> okay, on page, on uh, slide 14, I put the clinical stages. At, I know this is rather, you know, uh, repetitive. Um, it's the early, early localized, and then it disseminates, okay, and then it starts digging into... Uh, the various, um, <clears throat> you know, it, usually the uh, nervous system. Okay, remember that Lyme is a spirochete, very much like syphilis. Syphilis is a, is a spirochete, and we all know the the um, process of syphilis, at least we learned it in school, where, you know, first you'd get the canker sore, then it would go away, and then you'd get a rash, then it would go away, and then much later on it would attack the brain. There's many people in history that have died of um syphilitic brains, um, and um, this follows the same pattern, although I will tell you that Lyme is syphilis's smarter cousin, because problem is Lyme can hide, okay, and on the bottom you'll see different symptoms of Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain fibre, uh, spotted fever, and anaplasmosis, okay, you might want to take a look at the uh, differences in what the symptomatology might show. <clears throat> testing, and here be, there be dragons, meaty. Okay, what's the biggest problem, my friends? Is the testing. Okay, and I know that Sean's going to um, talk about this and uh, what would be considered appropriate testing, but I'm going to go through the different types of testing, what they do, and their relative efficacy. Okay, so that you can have a you know, kind of an idea of what's happening. ELISA, which is enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay, is your normal um, test that's used as a screening test. It tests for the immunoglobulins um, or the antibodies to Lyme. <clears throat> You've also heard of a Western blot. The Western blot is that um, test that's used to separate and identify proteins. Okay, you've seen this like if you watch um, any of the crime shows where they you know, kind of inject uh, some fluid into this electrophytic gel, okay, and then it spreads out and you see these little bands, okay, and um, the band is, the, is for each type of protein and its weight. You also maybe hear the uh, term PCR, which means polymerase chain reaction, and this is something that multiplies or magnifies DNA if it's, uh, if it's there. <clears throat> ITT, or uh, part of the iSpot line, which is a trademark of the Neuroscience Corporation, uh, tests, tests the T-cell response in patients who've been exposed to Borrelia bugdaforia spirochete. Different from the other tests, this will take your white blood cells, put antigens in, and see if, you, if your white blood cells react. And if you remember my uh, podcast on the immune system, okay, the T-cell response, if you have memory cells, okay, and you get an antigen, it will react. <clears throat> Cytokine analysis, which is also part of the I-spot line, okay, tests for the presence of inflammatory cytokines, um, IFN gamma, which are captured and then captured near the cells, and then they use a coloring agent. But they can tell uh, whether the immune system is secreting cytokines, which are the biomarkers of the immune system. 
There's also been another test on the on the horizon, a blood culture test by Advanced Laboratory Services. I'm going to speak about that in a little while. Okay, and then there's some indirect findings on other lab tests that Sean will uh, talk about. And I got to tell you that uh, I'm I'm happy to have Sean here today because he's an absolute whiz when it concerns lab tests. And I'll never forget the day he walked behind me. Okay, because he works in my office. Of course, walked behind me, did a quarter of a second look at a set of lab tests I was looking at, and said, "That's Lyme." I'm like, "Yeah, thanks." <laughs> okay, and don't you know it was? Okay, and I'm like, "How do you do that?" I'm like, "He, he does. He does things like that. It's uh, kind of weird, kind of uh, strange, but whatever." Okay, what's the problems? The problems are false negatives and false positives. Yeah, my Brooklynese almost came out. <clears throat> the most common tests that measure patient, uh, most common tests measure the patient's antibody response to the infection. So when your body's invaded by the spirochetes, your immune system makes antibodies to fight the infection. Tests that measure antibody levels are indirect because they're measuring the body's response rather than the presence of the bacteria themselves. Well, guess what? During the first four to six weeks after exposure, most people haven't developed the antibody response, okay, that the test measures. So you're going to get a false negative. And doctors commonly order uh, ELISA, and this is from the CDC, first to screen for the disease and then confirm the disease with a Western blot. Well, frankly, if ELISA is not positive, it doesn't reflex to the Western blot. But the current ELISA tests are not sensitive enough for screening, and they may miss over half the true cases. How many people out there have, have Lyme and have had negative tests? Okay, because of this, the antibody test is probably um, not the first thing to use, but I, I always use the Western blot. And the Western blot. The readout of the Western blot looks kind of like a barcode, okay? And there's plenty of literature out there. But the pattern produced by running the test with your blood is compared to a template, okay, mm -hmm. the front known cases of Lyme disease, okay? Mm -hmm. if, your blot, if your blot has bands in the right places and the right number of bands, it's considered positive. Some of the bands are a little more significant than others. Different criteria from different sources are used to determine the presence of Lyme. I'm going to tell you something, that there's a lot of human participation in this test and a lot of human interaction. In other words, it's not like you take the blood, you throw it into a machine, it does it. Okay? So believe it or not, this is where the reputation of the lab comes into play, okay? how well they do it, how well they're overseen. Um, and sometimes it's which bands they're looking for. Okay, so the Western blot requires interpretation, and on the next page, I got a little. Um, I have a little grid to kind of show you what the CDC and um, other people. And I'm sorry, it's a little um, uh, fuzzy, but uh, the bands that are thought to be specific, you can see these are kill adult and bands. It just has to do with the weight. But as you see, the 18 and 22 is considered specific. The 23 to 26, the OPC, is highly specific, and that will come in play in a couple of minutes. Okay, 28 is not specific. Okay, we go down to 41. It's considered nonspecific. A lot of people have a positive 41 band, but that re represents the flagella or the tail of the, um, of the spirochete, and that can be almost anything, okay? So you see here, if you're going to be looking at your... Western blot, look for the band numbers, okay, the kill adult and band, 
and compare it to this chart about what is specific and what is highly specific. Even though the CDC says you have to have five out of ten, if you have a, just two or three um, that are highly specific, I'd be more suspicious of Lyme myself, okay? And a lot of physicians who are in the know will not just look at the CDC criteria, they will look at the relative specificity of the bands. So I gave you that for you guys to use um, as you will, okay? PCR, uh, the polymerase chain reaction multiplies a key portion of the DNA from the Lyme bacteria so it can be detected. This is real accurate. Problem, it produces a lot of false negatives. Reason, the Lyme bacteria, like I said, they like to hide, so they're sparse. And if they're not in the sample that's tested, in other words, if it's not in that serum, you're going to get a false test even though somebody has, has active or quiescent Lyme. Again, we talked about the iSpot Lyme. Okay, this is where the lab will take your white blood cells, okay, and uh, put them and culture them out for a few days and use the antigens that you see there. You see the OPC and the VISE and the P100, and these are early antigens, mid-stage antigens, late-stage antigens. And then they look at the cells after a few days to see if, in fact, they're going nuts, okay, or really reacting, okay, and that tells you that those are memory cells, okay, and the nice thing about this is the T-cell response to Lyme infection is detectable after about two weeks after the tick bite and lasts about two to three months in the acute phase. And let me tell you something. When you have memory cells, okay, they will last for years. And we talk about memory cells. You've heard me joke about memory cells. Okay, and we're talking about gluten and this. But guess what? Once you have those memory cells, they'll last a good 10 years. Okay, so a test like this will tell you hey, this person's been exposed, okay? And if you know how to read it, kind of how bad they've been exposed. <clears throat> the other uh, part of the ice spot line on, on slide 21, okay, is where they're going to check for these small proteins called cytokines, which are excreted by the white blood cells, okay? And they can be captured and marked, Okay, and you can tell the difference between the inflammation from the Lyme and the inflammation that's just generalized. Okay, um, if you read the, um, the literature on it, it will tell you, but this is all in one test. Okay, and it's unfortunately it's just for Lyme, for Borrelia bugdiforia. I have been screaming at them to use to do it for all the co-infections, but so far they're just doing it for Borrelia bugdifori. Okay? Now, the Lyme blood culture. Uh, I was, this uh, lab is uh, present in Philadelphia, okay, and um, they announced the uh, availability of a test to culture out the actual organism. And everybody started encouraging people to use this test because that would be the holy grail. If you could culture it out, Okay, and see it right there under a microscope, hard to argue, huh? But the FDA and, and a bunch of other people uh, got a little nutty because um, they said that there wasn't enough validation or peer-reviewed or published uh, research um, 
and there was uh, this was from Medscape. Uh, the test in, on their own website, they, they tell you that the test has not been uh, cleared or approved by the FDA presently. Um, I can only tell you from uh, my experience in sending in uh, reading the test and sending some patients that the results have been variable. Okay, um, I think it's a good idea, and I, I hope that it develops into something very, very positive. Okay, because that would be the holy grail. People, Lyme is everywhere. I'm talking everywhere. Okay, incredible but true. It's in, it's in over 80 countries, and I found this. Uh, I found this paper that said the subantarctic is a region in the southern hemisphere just north of the Antarctic Circle. Okay, that contains these few islands. And they found that the spirochetes, Borrelia bugdifori, were in the king penguins there. And they were carried by the seabirds. Okay, so there's lime in Antarctica. That is amazing. So you don't think there's lime in Iowa? <laughs> and it's in Antarctica? Trust me, okay? There's a lot of controversy when it concerns Lyme, and I'm going to turn this over to Sean in just a moment. Okay, according to New England Journal of Medicine, chronic Lyme doesn't exist. Okay, yet Lyme is recognized as a multi-system disease. Several countries don't recognize Lyme as a leg legitimate disease, Australia being one of them. Most countries don't recognize the existence of chronic Lyme disease. Okay, treatment for Lyme ranges from oral to IV antibiotics, short and long-term, botanicals, herbals. So enters the Lyme-literate medical doctor, okay? And you'll notice that most of these doctors are not present in hospitals because they practice outside the normal um, and traditional manner of thinking. Okay, and I'm going to ask Sean to uh, start um, uh, to give us his opinion, but just to let you know that Sean is uh, not only brilliant in his own right, but he's been working two days a week with Dr. Leslie Fine, who is one of the finest Lyme doctors in the United States. And I guarantee you he's learned a bunch. So, Sean, I know you're there. I hear you breathing. Okay? Um, tell us. You've been, uh, you've been working with Dr. Fine for a while. And um, what do you think about proper testing um, for Lyme? In other words... If somebody has a high index of suspicion, what they should they be doing to make sure that they do or don't have Lyme? Well, you went over a lot of the uh, preliminary tests, which is excellent. The way I tend to sniff out Lyme is I kind of do it indirectly versus directly. And from being under Dr. Leslie Fine, I've learned a little tricks and traits, so to speak, which has been able to help me identify people who had have, have, have thought they had Lyme, they went to a doctor, they got diagnosed who didn't have Lyme, but through these indirect methods, I was able to um, shed more light to have them actually, you know, <clears throat> reconsider the situation and actually go to uh, an LMD that I work with, and they were actually found to have diagnosis of Lyme through the LMD. Uh, <laughs> one of the major testing mechanisms that is suggested is you look at the ECP. The ECP is ecophilic cationic protein. Um, this is a marker, usually when it's elevated for uh, Babesia. Um, a lot of times um, I get contacted by doctors, LMDs, saying that these are just genetic markers and they don't have any relevance or anything like that. But actually, um, 
Dr. Klein uses them as a tracking mechanism to see how the line, to see how treatment is actually going in relationship to um, doing the traditional testing. Um, Dr. Klein is very, very particular in testing. He only uses top-of-the-line labs. Uh, one of those labs would be um, um, Stony Brook would be one of them, MDL, Galaxy, Hygienix uh, is another one. Uh, she's slowly getting into the eye spot. I've introduced it to her, but she's a woman uh, who um, is very traditional and has to lose everything. <clears throat> she's one of the few Lyme doctors who I've gone into the office to where she was actually researching cases, um, to where that she didn't understand something. She was on Google's looking it up, which was absolutely amazing. Because her and I have very mind life sets, because if we don't know something, we'll ask people who do, or dig further into her own research to try to find the answers. And she's always sending me uh, articles and stuff um, of keeping me abreast of new findings, um, from her colleagues and stuff, who are some of the most well-respected in the world. So <clears throat> when the ECP goes up out of range, that's usually a marker for Babesia. Um, when yeah, another marker would be BEGF, which is vas vascular endothelial growth factor. When this is elevated, this is usually a potential sign of Bartonella, uh, which is one of the most difficult things to catch. I know when doctor finds Bartonella after several attempts because they, the, she knows it's there, but um, it's very, it's very, very elusive. So after, sometimes she's got to go people up to 12 or 14 times until she catches it, um, which makes it a very challenging because that thing can morph and get, get into places that you would never think possible. Um, it's very, it's very, what we call stealth pathogen. Um, and when the ECP goes, is when the VCP is high and the VEGF is low, this is usually potentially when the line goes autoimmune. Um, I don't know the exact um, mechanism by which that works, but usually you'll see that on an ANA profile when it gets elevated uh, if there's no other mechanisms of autoimmune disorders um, such as uh, Hajimoto's, celiac, Surge, or Shergen's, and other autoimmune disorders. Um, another mechanism by which we look at is, is, um, is the vitamin D. 25 to vitamin D125 ratio. Hello? Are you there? Okay. Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, I'm, I'm typing what you're saying into the chat okay. so that people who are on the chat can get the, uh, the gist of what you're saying. So the vitamin 25 versus the vitamin D125, D right? Uh, <clears throat> what this basically means is... <clears throat> Everybody tells you to take vitamin D. Everybody, all the all the health advocates out there tell you to take a very high dosage of vitamin D. Try to get levels up in the 60 or 70 range. Okay, this information is potentially dangerous, and I'll tell you why. When a when a pathogen locks onto a vitamin D receptor, um, a pathogen, mold, heavy metals locks on receptor, it will actually change the metabolism of vitamin D. Uh, into its 125 metabolite, okay? 
when these people have, um, when LMD doctor puts a person on higher dosages of vitamin D, it really, um, it almost sends shivers up my spine because I know what I'm going to find is, is when I check the vitamin D level, vitamin D25 OD level or OH level, I find that it's going to be, you know, within the acceptable normal range. But when I check the vitamin D125, I've seen ranges as high as 150 to 200. Um, and this can be called traumatic because we also feel that vitamin D is a beneficial vitamin, which is true. But in presence of a pathogen or there's other factors that affect the vitamin D receptor, it can be working against you. <clears throat> um, the reason it works against you is because, in layman's terms, it will take vitamin D that has a, a anti-inflammatory property and turn it into a pro-inflammatory property. Um, there's a lot of people who take vitamin D and they get anxiety. Oh, this is one of the reasons why this just happens, because it's overstimulating vitamin D receptor uh, and can cause problems. So the guidelines are this. If your vitamin D, which would be the 125 over the 25, is greater than two or is two or greater, then it would be highly suggestible not to supplement vitamin D. It doesn't matter how low it is, okay? <clears throat> it's not just the ratio, but it's also within the um, limits. So, for example, if you have a vitamin D level 25 OH of 8, and you have a 125 of 30 or 40, in that situation you do not supplement, even though that it's below vitamin D 125, upper limit of 75, okay? Now, I presume that they actually test both things. Exactly. Well, the problem is, is doctors don't know about this, and I've been going to different seminars and stuff from Dr. Ben, and I've mentioned this, and the practitioners will pop up like, you know, they're like, what do you, like, I have two eyes, like, I have four eyes and two mouths, and I go on to explain, and then all of a sudden, I get these callbacks, that these people have been chronic fatigue syndrome for 15 years and have vitamin D levels of 165, vitamin D 125, 165, 170, 225, and the vitamin D levels are 20. There was a study, there was a study that was published out of Canada uh, that actually looked at this marker, the vitamin D 25 to 125 ratio, and it was actually found that there was a slight elevation in it. So there is scientific documentation. This kind of comes so from what they call. This kind of comes from the ideology of um, the uh, Marshall Protocol, uh, which is you know you drop your vitamin D level down um, to the lowest possible doses by you, then you use vitamin A and uh, other mechanisms um, to help sequester. But Dr. Leslie Fine took the basis of that and doesn't use all the other um, don't use all the other. Um, uh, mechanisms because she feels that it's more, it's, it's more of a marker than anything. And the interesting thing is, is I run into this from lined up LMDs all the time for traditional. Oh no, that's a bunch of garbage. Well, guess what? When you treat the line, guess what happens? You don't have to use much antibiotics. And number two, the vitamin D125 actually starts to drop down when the, when the um, virus, is uh, virus is treated successfully. Or it goes into remission. That's that's um, that's incredible information. But well, let's uh, let's circle back. Let's circle back to Lyme itself. Uh, what have you seen as the? <clears throat> I, I, we're always asked, and I know you're asked this all the time, and so am I. Uh, 
there are people who want to know if they're being treated appropriately for Lyme uh, or inappropriately. What, what, are, what are the appropriate treatments or things that you have found this to be most successful, okay, um, in treating Lyme? First of all, when treating the Lyme, you just don't want to treat the Lyme, you want to treat the person. That's the number one biggest error. A lot of LMD doctors are fantastic at using uh, antibiotics and other mechanisms to control the Lyme, but a lot of them, um, because of their, you know, because of their philosophy, they tend not to address the other issues. And with that approach, and go ahead, go ahead and delineate what those issues are, because this is something you and I have been talking about with people for the longest time, not only treating the bug, but treating what the bug does to the body. So, uh, kind of, you know, realize that we have a lot of uh, a lot of lay people out there who, you know, I'm, I'm not looking to spoon feed people. I don't want to insult anyone, but the fact is, most people don't. Just, most people don't hear it in this manner. So when you say that okay. they don't treat the body, what is it that needs to be treated? What I'm going to do is I'm going to make a very, very simple explanation, and this has been the um, uh, analogy I've been using, and as soon as they start to see this, this, the eyes light up, like, oh, my God, that makes sense. A lot of the times people are coming into LMD doctors in a stress environment to begin with. Their guts are destroyed. Their guts aren't absorbing. They're in a stress state, and... Their endocrine system is all out of bounds, all kinds of stress on what you call the HBT access, which is the general that gives the signals, because Lyme will affect the pituitary, uh, which mm-hmm. gives those commands. So your general is basically drunk and giving out the wrong signals, and the soldiers are just trying to execute to the best of their potential. Um, but what they fail to see is, is, um, is that when addressing Lyme, um, you want to address the other systems that work in conjunction with it. And the analogy I use is this. You know, imagine one day trying to, you know, imagine one day you're sleeping, all of a sudden your friend comes in all excited. They're like, say, hey, it's time to get up and go run a 26-mile marathon. You know, let's go run the Boston Cat. And you're sitting there looking like, what are you talking about? How am I going to manage that? Okay. Well, they're like, just get your clothes on and go. Well, you just get your clothes up and go, and next thing you know, about a mile, mile and a half into the race, you're falling on your face. Okay. And this is the same principle by which uh, approach the line, the line, the approach that I have for line has been incredibly successful in conjunction approach. Okay, um, the analogy would be this: is that you have to prep, prepare the body for battle going into the uh, ring with this creature. Okay, the problem is is that these systems are downregulated, they're stressed to the max, their guts inflamed, they're not absorbing their nutrients. And they're, they're coming in unprepared, okay? They're, in the analogy of the marathon, it was like you never trained, you didn't diet right, you need to exercise according to, pure, you know, periodization, uh, you need to carb load, otherwise you're not going to get to the, uh, you're not going to get to the finish line on time. So, so what you're saying, go ahead. I'm sorry. So as practitioners, what we want to do is, is we want to prepare you for that battle so you have the proper um, sword, shield, and armor so when you go into battle with this line that you have a fighting chance and that your outcome is going to be much greater. So what you're saying is, uh, just to repeat, is that the treatment of Lyme is important, okay, that most Lyme literate doctors are 
are very well versed in the uh, use of antibiotics and, and other methods of killing the bug, but one of the reasons that we tend to see chronic Lyme patients or people with chronic illnesses um, who've had Lyme, putting it just a little differently, is because <clears throat> the things that the Lyme has done to them, like mess there, giving them massive leaky gut syndrome, having neurotransmitter uh, imbalances that cause all kinds of mood changes, uh, having the adrenal uh, glands just not working or the thyroid just not working, uh, because of the uh, in, because of the lack of function of the pituitary, usually secondary to long-term uh, inflammation. We've been talk we talked a little bit about that with dysautonomia, that long-term inflammation will affect the receptors and cause all kinds of havoc in the body. That if if you look to support uh, these systems and get these systems up and running that the body responds better to the Lyme treatment, okay, and the person has a fighting chance of not having Lyme for the rest of their lives, so to speak. Have I got it right? That is absolutely correct. And also by doing what I call the groundwork, mm -hmm. they're going to have a greater quality of life while going through treatment, which is mm -hmm. going to be much easier for them, less neurological problems, um, less joint pain, more activity, more mental focus. Um, and this has been the um, report that I've been getting from a lot of the LMD doctors that I work with, especially Dr. Fine. Um, the approach by which we do this would be is very simple. The first thing we would want to assess would be um, the adrenals and neurotransmitters. We would want to work on setting the circadian rhythm so they're sleeping properly. So they're getting into restorative sleep, they're getting the proper REM sleep, and when they wake up, their battery's starting to recharge, okay? The problem is, is a lot of, a lot of doctors stick people on antidepressants and stuff, which in line has its purpose, okay? Because when there's inflammation on the brain, there has to be medical intervention because, because sometimes the receptors just don't work right. And as a natural practitioner, we have to work around that or in conjunction with it. So by supporting the neurotransmitters, by looking at the, what the drugs are actually doing and the, the adrenal glands, it, is, it has been a, uh, an incredible response from clients and the doctor's patients that by resetting the circadian rhythm of the sleep is giving them more energy waking up it's allowing them to sustain their energy throughout the daytime. It is working. It will also help to reduce inflammation, and it will actually help to bring some of the hormones back on track. Because the one thing I cannot emphasize in my practice, and Jesse can attest to this too, if you have poor sleep hygiene, you are never going to recover. And you cannot work on the adrenal glands unless you work on the neurotransmitters, okay? Because you can give enough energy throughout the daytime, but if that battery's not recharging at nighttime, then you're not going to get the maximum output. And in that situation, you will not be able to reduce inflammation because Lyme causes major inflammation. And inflammation, uh, just in general, is one of the major reasons why people have a lot of um, issues when it comes to Lyme. So let, let me repeat what you're let me repeat what you're saying. Um, 
as as we've all spoken of before, we speak with our patients that uh, the bug Lyme. Um, Bartonella, whatever it happens to be, causes a ton of inflammation. And the symptoms that we spoke about before, okay, uh, when I was giving those long lists, are really a result of not only the primary insult from the microorganism, but uh, the downstream effect of neurotransmitter imbalance and causing all kinds of mood issues, okay, gastrointestinal problems causing leaky gut syndrome, which causes all kinds of immune upregulation, okay, pituitary problems, which causes all kinds of thyroid and hormonal and adrenal problems, okay, and that by um, clearing away the brush or, or getting down to the basics and uh, reestablishing a normal sleep pattern, because we all know that my sainted Nana always said, if you sleep and you poop, everything's going to be okay, but the reality is that healing takes place in the first few hours of sleep. Okay, by getting people to sleep more naturally, by decreasing their inflammation by working on the guts, the gut, by rebalancing their neurotransmitters and supporting the adrenals and the thyroid in an appropriate manner. Okay, by doing this, am I hearing from you that the work that the Lyme literate doctors have been doing has been more successful and the patients have had a better time uh, treating, number one, and would that hold true also with some of the herbal remedies, like the Byron Whites, the um, Cowden protocols, that kind of stuff, uh, would that be the same for those protocols and those, uh, those Lyme treatments? Yes, that would be correct because even though that they're natural, you still have, you're still um, attacking, you're still going after a pathogen, okay? And the downstream mm-hmm. effect is what we call a herpes. Well, one of the things I learned is to use common sense in medicine, and that's why one of the that's one of the, the foundations of what bioindividualized medicine is is it's using common sense. And here's the reason why. People are coming to me from the LMD doctors, I'm herxing, I'm herxing. Okay, in general, what is herxing? Herxing stress, okay? So if we give the body's ability to cope with stress, then therefore there will be less chance of the body herxing, okay? And this has been the outcome from what I've seen working with LMDs as, and Dr. Fine in general is that we don't, this herxing as much once the body is able to handle stress on its own. And you have to ask yourself, the main question is, is why do people get Lyme and why do people don't? Number one is, is it, genetics is the main part, okay? Number two is, is the predisposition to adrenal issues and also the pathology of the um, events leading up to the Lyme. Because you can always, in 90% of the cases, be able to pinpoint when Lyme's occurred based upon a detailed evaluation. And it's always linked by some sort of stress, emotional, psychological, biological, a lifestyle change, uh, structural stress, uh, environmental, uh, and or a neurological or emotional trauma. So out of those seven, you want to look at all those factors and then the, paint the picture and tell the, and then you evaluate properly and give feedback to the person say, based upon your past events, Lyme may have triggered 
here potentially because you pushed your body to the limits and you know you broke the camel straw. And just because you got just because you got infected when you were six years old, your immune system is strong enough to keep the sleeping giant at bay. Okay? When you stress your body and you have these genetic expressions starting to come into play now because of the environmental stress, GMOs, and all the other wonderful factors that are contributing to it, you're starting to see these sleeping giants awake. And so what you're saying, so what you're saying is um, that Lyme and his cousins aren't any more virulent than anything else, but they're they're attacking bodies that are weakened. Correct. Correct. That's and an interesting that's point why, of view. Because it's like, I was a guest, why do I have Lyme? I go back to the underlying pathology, I ask questions, then we're able to put the time, whenever we're able to put a timeline together with the explanations. Most of the times, most of the times it comes from people that are type A personalities, which are COMTs, which are COMTs, going into the genetics, more prone to COMTs, the more likely to have NAT1, and twos, which is the adrenals, and they're more likely to have um, many mutations in the SIGA factor, which is part of the immune system. Um, MTHFR in this, um, because all, all the LMDs are going MTHFR crazy, MTHFR has a small piece of the pie, so to speak. But as you address the person by doing the groundwork, which is the neuro, which is the adrenals, neurotransmitters. Nutritional analysis is crucial because most of these people are um, depleted. Um, mm-hmm. Magnesium, manganese. Okay, and I just want to clear up a myth. I just want to clear up some misinformation. Okay, people, manganese is not low because of the lime. It, it feeds it. That's a crock of hooey. Okay, what it is is is. Because people have SOD2 mutations that are expressing, your body's demand in order to deal with oxidative stress by the line is great. So there is a supply and demand for manganese, okay? And first of all, a lot of the people are put on a grain-free diet. They're put on a non-inflammatory, they're put on an anti-inflammatory diet, very similar to paleo which will make your body predisposed to a manganese deficiency in the first place. Because manganese is found highly in grains, legumes, and nuts. Those are the main main foods by which manganese is found. And the majority of them are moved off the GAPS diet, and they're moved off all the other diets to reduce inflammation. So you need to check your red blood cell manganese levels because 80% of people that I find, okay, are not just deficient. They are out of the range below deficiency phase, which is a huge red flag that you need to tell your practitioners, mainly your doctors, to check your red blood cell manganese levels, okay? And over time, they will come up. So mm-hmm. as you control oxidative stress, mm-hmm. it will allow your body to conserve manganese, manganese and allow you to... So if I'm, um, reading you cor- if I'm reading you correctly, my brother, um, treating the oxidative stress is just as important as treating the Lyme. 
since we are, I've extended this to uh, 90 minutes, so we have a whole half hour left, I do want to give uh, the audience an opportunity to call in and ask you a question, ask me questions, mostly you, of course. Okay, if people would like to ask specific questions about Lyme, I want to make sure that we're answering your questions and serving you. Uh, the number is 646-595-2277. That's 646-595-2277. And if you happen to be on the chat and you have a question, type it in and I'll ask Sean myself. Okay. Um, so, Sean, tell us a little bit about the um, what you know or what your feelings are on some of the botanical protocols. Some of the botanical, some of the botanical protocols do work. Uh, as we just found out recently, there has to be a little caution with one of the herbs itself. Uh, it is one of the main herbs that is used in a lot of the protocols. Um, it's not usually used as standalone, but it is used as a um, um, part of a proprietary blend. Uh, that would be Cascal or Uncol de Gato. Um, we just had a recent case of where we actually were able to confirm through neurotransmitter testing that this was the sole source of why um, this person had such elevated issues and why it corresponded to their current uh, neurological symptoms. Okay, um, elevated what? I, I lost that. Um, but one of the reasons why cat's call may be problematic with people is, is because you're on your 23andMe, um, and when you run it through mthfrsupports.com um, database, um, there may be a marker called MALB. What MALB is, MALB inhibits dopamine breakdown. And what, part, and what, um, and what um, cat's call does is, when we look in the literature, cat's call is a Mayo B inhibitor which means if a person has predispositions to anxiety states, such as a genetic mutation with COMT, hetero or homozygous, whether they have a, um, they tend to overmethylate mm -hmm. or have other factors, then they need to proceed with extreme caution. Okay, so the uh, cat's claw can raise uh, dopamine and can cause difficulties. Uh, there's a couple of people waiting on hold to speak with you. So I'm going to ask, um, okay, hold on. Hi, uh, you're on the air, uh, area code 313. Uh, this is Dr. Armin and Sean. Hello, this is uh, Tom. And I'm calling in regards to my wife. Um, she's a client of actually Dr. Armin. And she has Lyme. And recently, her lack of sleep has been getting worse. So she's gone from, from being able to fall asleep, let's say, at 1 or 2 in the morning. If she tries to go to sleep any earlier than that, she'll just stay, she'll be wired the entire time. And last night, she was wired until 5 a.m. I was wondering if there's any natural remedies to kind of help her get that sleep that she needs to help her on that pathway. The first thing uh, in that type of case is you want to find the underlying pathology of the cause of why, why is that occurring and what shift in neurotransmitters may be happening and what is driving that source. If she currently has Lyme, it may be reactivated again. 
um, if it's in, if it's been uh, treated, it may be coming out again. Was there any past stress in the past, say, two or three weeks? Um, was there any uh, change in her cycle? Because one little known fact that has been uh, missed in LMDs is, is estrogen dominance can cause a major issue with inflammation as well as uh, increasing pro-inflammatory cytokines, which can aggravate uh, pre-existing Lyme conditions. And by one of the factors I look at is, is I look at estrogen balances uh, because they go outside the realm of LMDs because their scope is limited in this area. Uh, Dr. Fine is, uh, is starting to be aware now how important this is. But if she has an estrogen metabolite issue or she has um, more likely to estrogen dominance, this can also flare up the line too if it's not been um, properly addressed or even identified. So that's one area you may want to look into. Has this been happening around her cycle? Is she cycling? Okay. Um, no, she's not. She's just past that, that point. Okay. But so, that, still yeah. doesn't, that still doesn't rule out probability. Most people in line, because their adrenals are weakened, are going to be in state of estrogen dominance. Because as your adrenals crash, your progesterone is not going to be up to its natural par. And even though you have low progesterone, low estrogen, in total, ratio, in total levels, it's the ratio that matters. And even if that, if, even if that is apparent, okay, that, that's not a factor, then you have to look at the metabolites, which is the, um, which is the 16 hydroxy 4-hydroxy to the 2-hydroxy ratio, okay, which is basically bad estrogens to good estrogens because they can also cause major problems, um, but you go hidden with Lyme. And by correcting these imbalances, actually it's starting to help um, the doctors get through this hump, so to speak, with some of their uh, women cases. Okay. Well, thank you. You're most welcome. Thank you for calling in. And we have somebody from the 717 area code. You're on the air with Sean and Dr. Armine. Tell me if you have a question, please. Yeah. Yes. Hello, Dr. Armine and Sean. It's great to be with you. Thank you for taking my call. Um, my name is Barbie, and I'm in Pennsylvania. I have a question about... Um, whether neurological Lyme is something, quote, real, uh, what kind of symptoms you see, and specifically if you see that some of the damage is reversible. Well, I can, I can tell you right off the bat that neurological Lyme is absolutely real. There's no question in my mind, and I'm, I'm sure Sean would agree with me, that neurological Lyme is, is real. Um, and... Uh, the methodology, can it be fixed? Yes. Okay, can it be, uh, you know, can you guarantee that 100%? No one can. But if you follow the tenets that Sean was just talking about, in other words, mm -hmm. decreasing inflammation, uh, getting after the bug, giving the brain what it needs to heal, or the neurological system what it needs to heal, which means dropping the inflammation via the gut, balancing the neurotransmitters, a lot of the expression that you see, okay, mm -hmm. is not necessarily permanent damage. And mm -hmm. even if you were to argue that some of it is permanent, how much of it is permanent, you're never going to know 
unless you try and fix every parameter that you can, balance everything, and then you could argue at the at whatever's left over as being longer term or permanent. But I know that there's controversy controversy about neurological Lyme, but uh, this is a spirochete we're talking about. For whatever godforsaken reason, it's got an affinity for the central nervous system. Okay, and like I was mentioning earlier, all those all those symptoms that uh, you see that are ubiquitous with Lyme when it concerns psychiatric um, mood problems and so forth are evidence of neurological Lyme, no question. Mm-hmm. Sean? Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I can attest to this. We've had some major just pure neurological cases of we had people actually locked up in mental institutions um, and once the line was taken care of and with proper modalities, um, they're completely normal human beings again. Uh, it's absolutely amazing. The way you want to look at neurological line is, is you want to work with an LMD doctor who's willing to do a brain spec. This way you'll be able to see where the inflammation is and what regions of the brain that's located. And then that mm-hmm. way you will have help them guide their treatments mm-hmm. accordingly. Um, I've had cases to where people were completely, people tell me that I have a pressure in my head, but physically they have plenty, physically they're fine. But neurologically, they always tell me from my neck up, I, I feel like I have a line. And that's a, that's a major indicator right there because okay. their bodies are functioning. They're just it's all neurological symptoms. Um, okay. And mm-hmm. so... Absolutely. I think you have another question, Barry. Um, I, I, I don't. Um, you're talking a lot above the head, and um, I actually i am talking about myself, and I'm, I'm more along the lines of having symptoms like MS. Um, and I know, yeah. I, I think that does, it, I think a lot of it does go with what you're saying with, um, you know, getting the brain scan and all that. Um, no, rem- well, remember that M- that MS multiple sclerosis is is um, sclerosing or scarring of the mm-hmm. covering of the nerves and the kind of short circuit, if you will. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, the question remains is what. Go ahead. Let me add. Let me add something here. There's a little known factor called LPPLA2, which is uh, lipophosphatase A2. What that is is that is a blood test which gives you to look for how your cells are myelinated. Somewhat gives you an idea of how your cell membranes are. If that thing is elevated, that tells your that basically says your cell membranes are lacing, that are ripping mm-hmm. apart. Okay? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. normally when that happens, that's not a good thing. Because all that okay. phospholipid all that phospholipid bilayer is coming right apart as well as your essential fatty acids. That's mm-hmm. why it's crucial to look at this the um, red blood cell fatty acid metabolites, metabolism, fatty, fatty acid metabolism, uh, you can use, um, to get a good idea, if you eat the same food day in and day out, you can look at plasma essential fatty acid profile. Uh, mm-hmm. It's C12 through C22 at Quest and C8 through C26 at LabCorp, and that will give you somewhat an idea of what you're dealing with. Also, mm-hmm. if you have on your um, 23andMe, you have uh, PEMT, MTHFD1. Those are two major factors by which phospholipid gets chewed up rather fast. So your demand for phospholipid goes up. So mm-hmm. if you have LPPLA2 that's elevated and those um, mutations that are potentially uh, being expressed, that's something that you also want to consider. 
Okay, I, I do have a terrific um, biointegrative doctor, and um, we'll definitely we'll definitely follow up. Thank you because I'm going to listen to this podcast a few more times, and okay. I'll take a lot of notes. And free, I have a lot of feel free to so call us and uh, schedule a, a complimentary 15 minute consultation if you have further questions. Okay. Sounds great. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. I want to okay. I want to bring up an interesting fact here. Um, okay. Right now yeah. I'm dealing with. Right now, I'm dealing with a very unique case, um, and here's a very interesting fact people don't know. Lou Garrick used to vacation in Connecticut, and Lou Garrick's is also known as ALS, Lou Garrick's right. disease, mm-hmm. and there is possibly some speculation that he actually was infected by Lyme and just went on to develop, that went undiagnosed to actually develop that disorder. That's interesting because Lyme started in the Long Island, Connecticut area. We have uh, another another caller. Hello, caller from the 469 area code. This is Dr. Armine and Sean. Hi, guys. Um, I'm really glad you're doing this show. And I've been treating my Lyme since 08 with a pretty um, world-famous um, Lyme, LLMD. But um, I've come a long way, but I can't get rid of the pain and the pain that I have is like trigger point and it's like knots in my body and I just don't know what's left to do at this point. Any ideas? Um, in these type of cases what I found to work the best was Boswellia and load up on it. Um, Boswellia Wait, has what's been that called? It's called Boswellia. Boswellia, Boswellia serrata. B-O-S-W-E-L-L-I-A. What Boswellia serrata is, it's a natural anti-inflammatory that has been working wonders for uh, Dr. Fine's patients. We stumbled on it by um, just freak accident um, um, digging around. But one of the reasons why it works is it actually uh, inhibits the IDO enzyme, which allows the body not to go down the inflammatory pathway, which is the chironic pathway. So um, by reducing that impact of the enzyme keep the body from going from inflammation going to a pro-inflammatory state um, it's helped people sleep because a lot of people the reason they can't sleep is pain uh, I had actually in a couple of cases had to reduce the uh, meds and stuff under the doctor's supervision because of once we got the inflammation controlled that they um, they were able to discontinue a lot of the meds they were on as well as supplementation to help them sleep so that's yeah, done. my sleep is fine. Is and then the other question you should be asked should be asking yourself is why are you still so inflamed? Okay, if you've been working. Do you think it's inflammation? Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, that's that's something that we 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 dance around. But the fact is that uh, the and if you use Boswellia or anything else, what it's doing is reducing inflammation. Okay, so if it works, okay, which it should. Okay, and get the um, get the Boswellia serrata, not the uh, tinctures or anything like that. Get the actual Boswellia. If it works, it takes a good week to work. But if it does, then you have to ask yourself, why am I inflamed? Okay, and that's I why don't we know. Go, and it's, it gets worse with movement. Would that be inflammation too? Mm-hmm. Of course. You know, getting worse with movement means that the trigger points are knotting the muscles, and of course you're trying to stretch the muscles as you're moving. Okay, so right. you're 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 having more pain. But to get at the root cause of it, okay, you're saying to yourself, why am I having 
Why am I continually having tri- uh, trigger points? Why am I having these, um, you know, pockets of lactic acid in, in me, okay, that are, you know, mm-hmm. where the myoneural junctions are and, you know, they're causing the muscles to remain tight, okay, remain constantly spasmed, okay? The, the question remains is, you know, if you take an anti-inflammatory, you use an anti-inflammatory herb and it works, is why are you still, still fairly inflamed? And that's why we talk about going back to basics because many people have not taken care of the basics. They haven't truly worked on the gut. They, they'll say, oh, I did a gut repair, and I'll say, what did you do? Oh, I take probiotics. <laughs> that's not the way you, yeah. you, you yeah. repair a gut. Okay, and the gut is the great creator of inflammation. Let me interject here. You're right. Yeah. It's the gut. One of, I know. Okay. One of the, Thank you. One of, the po- one of the possibilities for why this may happen is it's in the pyruvate cycle. What happens is a lot of times the pyruvate cycle gets shifted from anaerobic to aerobic metabolism, and one of the pathways by which it goes down is lactate. So if a person's having um, more muscle, muscle thickness, yeah, muscle tightness. Stiffness. And they have, lot, they they have lactic acid, right? From lactic acid. Their doctor may want to run a lactate to pyruvate serum to look at the ratios, as well as a um, pyruvate dehydrogenase, um, RBC, which may be possible. And what that will do is, is that will give someone indication what condition the pyruvate cycle is in, um, because you don't want your body going to an anaerobic metabolism. That's when um, goes into ethanol and it goes into other factors that actually inhibit the methylation cycle, which is not a good thing. So, like you said, uh, consider the gut. There's lots of things to consider. Sometimes going to basics helps. You know, if uh, things get a little hairy, you know, we're always here to help you. Okay? Are you there? Okay. Thank you so much. Have yeah, a good I'm night. here. Thank Bye-bye. you. I'm just writing down everything. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Jeff, I just want to bring light to one thing is, is that, that I'm running into it with a, a supplement that has wonderful, uh, wonderful implications in a lot of diseases. Um, the product NADH, people with Lyme have been lost with it, the neurological Lyme. What happens is, is when you fire mitochondrion, what that's going to do, that's going to actually increase oxidative stress, mainly when potentially when the brain itself. When you, when, you blo- when you block up the mitochondrion? No, when you fire up the mitochondrion, because NADH ah. will fire up the mitochondrion, which gives it support, and it, it, it uh, triggers specific complexes. Uh, I think it's, what, correct me on this, one, one, three, which complexes NAD fires up, Jess? The F-complex NDUFS. Yeah, NDUFS. Yeah. So... When you supplement with this product, you've got to be highly you got to be highly careful because I've had a couple people that had neurological Lyme, their symptoms got worse. But I had other people to where it was less neurological, they got better. So um, I brought this to attention and further followed up with further research. And um, this is what um, the hypothesis is that we came up with to just just as a precaution. Okay, we have another caller. Caller from the 208 area code. You're on the air with Sean and Dr. Jess. Hi, my name is Pomona. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Great. Um, I was mainly curious if there is some way that you can treat Lyme without actually using antibiotics. Well, that's why we 
spoke about the botanical protocols. There's um, there's several of them out there, and um, you know. I'm sorry. Can you speak just a bit louder, please, Pomona? Yes. Do most LLMDs know about these protocols? <clears throat> no, most LLMDs do not know about these protocols, um, but they are starting to get more into the essential oils because there's more research behind them. Um, Dr. Fine is starting to investigate those possibilities to have it used in um, combination with, but as of now, um, LMDs may or may not be aware of these, but the problem is is the interactions, okay? Because when you're mixing antibiotics with natural med with natural meds, there's so many different mechanisms of action that it's going to increase the variables they have to deal with. And unless they are comfortable with it, they're not going to introduce it. So you may want to look at what would be an integrated LMD doctor or an N D L M D as they would call them, like a naturopathic L M D. Um, okay. And the other question I had is, um, I have a three-year-old, and I live in a high-tick area here. Um, somebody else from the family just had a tick found on them. Um, what do they usually treat children with um, if there is a bite? Um, and let's say the tick does test positive. Do we wait for the tick to test positive, or do they treat right away? He has some neurological issues, and I just don't know how well he would handle antibiotics, and I don't know that he can take doxy. And that that becomes a real that becomes a real conundrum. Um, your first question is um, if the tick tests positive for Lyme, and you pull the tick off, and it was somewhat engorged, you didn't know how long it's been there. Um, you know, uh, the the cautious person would say treat for Lyme. Uh, if um, because you're not going to be able to get a good test that says, you know, um, the per- the person has Lyme or the child has Lyme for several weeks. If you uh, see a bullseye rash, you can treat presumptively. Okay, um, and again, the the general first line has been doxycycline. If he already has other issues, um, then you know we can't we can't tree to recommend specific uh, treatments over the radio because it's, it would be inappropriate, yeah, but, um, but we would be happy to uh, ch- uh, chat with you personally uh, if you give us a call and, um, like I said, make a, you know, call Megan and um, make a 15-minute conference so we could uh, discuss it a little bit uh, further um, because okay. you're saying things like he has... Um, it's the other issues that concern me, so it may be a, a middle ground. But I will say that um, as a parent, I have I have three boys who are now gigantic. <laughs> okay, and if you have to make a decision, and the the uh, tick had Lyme, and you know that Lyme is going to go neurological, and he already has neurological issues, uh, you might want to think about treating it. Uh, and then mopping up whatever the antibiotics do to the system. That may be one thought pattern, and I'd be happy to discuss with that, that with you personally because um, it's a scary decision to have to make. I, I, I don't envy you, but um, leaving Lyme in his system without positively going after it, and your best window is right, is right within a couple of weeks after the bite. 
Okay, that's your best window. Um, I just hate to see him, you know, get any further neurological issues. If they do the Western blot, what I've been reading, I'm sorry, I don't want to take up too much time, but what I've been reading oh, is fine. that um, a lot of tests um, are not, um, you know, there are a lot of false positives. That's or, right. A lot, of, a lot of false positives. Yeah. There's, so, uh, there's no... Do we even know, or do we just treat? Well, like I said, if if given the fact that you had the tick tested and it had had Lyme, um, if the if you pulled the tick off and it was engorged, like it's been there for a while, okay, um, and you know you you don't know how long it was on, but you know if it's got a good blood meal going, in other words, it expands, okay, uh, it's been on for a while. Uh, I think the probabilities lean more towards the Lyme than not. If the tick was still thin and um, you pulled it off and you got it had Lyme, the probabilities are lower. But like you said, you're in a you're in a high tick area. How many times has this child been bitten that we don't know about? Okay, this is a really tough decision. I understand completely. It's a very tough decision. Um, that's why I kind of wanted to talk with you privately about it. Yes, I understand. Yeah. You know, and I can we can yeah. go through the testing. It's uh, because some of the testing is better. You know, you'll see more late stage Lyme. Some of it you'll see more early stage Lyme. Uh, even with a three year old, he may have been bitten several times. Okay, and you may see a mixed bag in the testing. And if you already have um, Western blots or anything, I'd be happy to look at them with you. Okay, um, it's 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 a tough it's a tough decision. I I, I understand, but uh, some of the things I, I I don't want to commit to over the air. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, I understand that. Thank you so much. You're most Thank welcome. You Take care. Bye bye. Really appreciate it. You're most welcome. Jack. I want yes, to bring I'm light, here. I want to bring the light to the fact that maybe not a lot of people know this, but Lyme's not the only thing that um, ticks are not the only thing that transmits Lyme. Um, mosquitoes. Specific flies, chiggers, fleas. So, uh, oh, you're making me itchy. There is also speculation, not proven, that it may be actually a sexually transmitted disease. Um, I mentioned that earlier. Yeah. Um, one of the facts is, is my hypothesis is, is um, I think this is going to make you know the HIV thing. I think this is going to. I think Lyme spreading is going to probably outdo that because I don't doubt it. Such, it's such a silent um, disease. Killer. And so, yeah. many people, so many people have it, and they have no clue because it's a sleep. It's like a sleeping giant. Um, it and is. It is, and it's been spreading and getting worse. And I begin to wonder if it part of it isn't, um, and, and excuse me to the powers that be, if it is an ignorance on the part of certain um, uh, certain fa- certain factions that don't want uh, chronic Lyme to be recognized because of the expense of treatment. Uh, We have about three minutes left, and um, uh, I want to let everybody know that um, what we do here at the Center for Bioindividualized Medicine is uh, is we support the victims of Lyme disease. And uh, what we spoke about, you know, uh, gastrointestinal support, uh, neurotransmitter balancing, um, hormonal and adrenal support, uh, we also do uh, nutritional IVs, intravenous um, infusions with high-dose vitamin C, glutathione, et cetera, uh, through our um, MD, Mary Karshuba. Uh And uh, these we can offer 
um, our clients, and we um, really suggest that if, uh, if on the one hand, if you're going in for Lyme treatment or you're considering it, that you get your body in fighting shape, so to speak, or if you're one of those people that has had lots of Lyme treatment and you're just not better, okay, we would be the people that you'd want to call and discuss it with. Okay, and if you want to talk with us uh, at the end of the PDF, you'll see our, uh, inf- our consult, uh, how you can get a consult with us using info at bioindividualmed.com. The phone number is there where there's a contact form. We do offer a 15-minute um, complimentary get acquainted consultation so that you could ask us further questions and we can determine if it can help you or not. And uh, we're happy to do that. And I think that uh, we're going to find that we're probably going to have to do something next week concerning this subject, Sean. You know, especially um, if you can get somebody like Dr. Uh, Dr. Fine yeah, to talk. I just, I just, I just contacted her. I know, I know that lady busy as can be, um, but she's starting to get back on the speaking. Out and uh, she's starting to. Um, Dr. Ben Lins's conference gave her the motivation to get out there and start speaking Good. again. Um, she was thrilled to learn about, you know, learn about the methylation and how to better understand it to help um, just to so, understand it a little bit better. So I'm going to try to get her on show next week, and that would be a great honor. That to would be, it would be an honor. And and people tell your friends because Dr. Fine's one of the finest Lyme literate doctors and one of the finest uh, neuroendoimmune doctors that I know of. Okay, and if we uh, get an opportunity to have her on the show next week. Uh, this would be a golden opportunity to ask your most complex questions. So guess what, people? Uh, we went 90 minutes, and we didn't take a breath. So really appreciate your um, your attention, and I look forward to uh, seeing you all next week. Let's see what we can get together next week, huh, Sean? You know, Absolutely. and thanks, Sean, for your, uh, for your time. Thank you for your time and your knowledge, Sean. You, you've, right. you've always been an incredible, um, incredible source of knowledge. So, everybody, good night. I'm going to play the theme, and then we're out of here. It's been a long road Getting from there to here It's been a long time But my time is finally And I can feel the change in the world right now Nothing is in my way Just remember everybody, chronic disease, Lyme, Babesia, Bardinella notwithstanding, okay, it's all chronic disease and we can defeat it. We don't have to put up with those naysayers that say, you know, you're just going to have to live like this, okay? Let's uh, let them know where we come from. Let's, let, let's show them our strength together. You guys have a good week. I'm looking forward to talking with you next week. Have a good week. Hang in there. Bye-bye.